It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how, how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it, poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray them, betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here. Let me say as we begin, what a great pleasure it is to be here. What an honor. I've been praying for this church for many years, but you may not realize this is my very first Sunday here. So I am a guest to you as much as you're a new face to me, and so it's great to be with you and great to be among you. I see a lot of familiar faces. I've forgotten how many of our students at Reform Seminary are here at Christ Central. In fact, I thought a few of them before the service were going to break out their laptops and think about taking notes uh, during the sermon. But I assured them there would be no quiz today uh, on this particular uh, Sunday. So, but it is good to be with you, and we're glad that uh, we have a chance, my whole family, to be here with you today. I want you to make sure that you're turning your Bibles to this passage we just read moments ago, Mark chapter 14. This is where we'll be spending our time together today. And uh, I, I think there's a copy of it in your bulletin there if you're looking for one, and you can follow along as we probe into this passage together this morning. But it's really great to be with you. As you're turning there and as you're tracking it down, let me say a word of prayer as we kick off our time together today. Lord, we do pause and listen to you. Lord, we trust that these words today in this passage are your words to us, and we're thankful for it. Give us ears to hear today, Lord, as we come before you in this passage. May you speak to us through it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Jesus is one of those words in our world today that always evokes a reaction. Ever notice that? It's amazing how many things you can talk about, how many things you can say, how many things you can discuss with people, and they remain rather ambivalent or neutral or unconcerned, shrugging their shoulders. You can talk about God. You can talk about religion. You can talk about church. You can talk about prayer. You can talk about the Bible. You can talk about all kinds of things. But mention the name of Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Say a prayer in the name of Jesus, and suddenly things change, and often rapidly. People take up sides. 
They choose positions. They lay out arguments. Jesus has this way when he presents himself to people so that they no longer can remain neutral, ambivalent, and unconcerned. Jesus is such a grand personality. Jesus makes such enormous claims on the world about himself and about us that whenever he comes before an individual, they have to ask themselves and make a decision, what will I do with Jesus? In fact, this is why Richard Dahan in his famous book called Jesus the Great Divider. That's not a name we think about much with Christ, is it? Jesus, the great divider, the great separator. But in fact, that's what he is. Everybody who meets Jesus finds out that they have to go this way or that way, choose this direction or that direction. Jesus is one of those individuals you cannot be neutral about. Jesus always asks us to make a decision about what we will do when we meet him. In fact, that's the very thing going on in this passage that was just read moments ago here in Mark chapter 14. Really what this passage is about is asking the reader, what will you do with Jesus? Because if you've been reading the gospel of Mark up to this point, and you've been tracking with it for 14 chapters, you would know that by the time you got to this particular passage, the text is basically asking you to decide which kind of reaction you're going to have to Jesus, because in this passage, it lays out three different kinds. It's a wonderful passage. In fact, Mark does this a lot in his gospels, what he do, or in his gospel. What he does a lot is he juxtaposes stories together that contrast with one another to make his point more clear. And in this story, he does exactly that same thing. What he does is he gives us three different reactions to Jesus, three different paths that people have taken, and he lays them all out in one single story as if to say to the reader, you two have to choose one of these three paths. Mark really gives us a tour of the different options for what happens when people meet Jesus. Now, one could argue, I suppose, that these aren't all the options. Maybe there's more options than these, but I think as we'll see in the story, these are the three main options. And as we work through these options together, as we sit here together as Christ Central Church today and all those who are guests with us, the key question to ask ourselves as we work through these three options is simple. Which of these three describes me? Which of these three options have I chosen? So Mark wants to take us on this tour. So let's join him on that tour today. You'll notice in your passage, we'll start with the very first verse there in our text, and it's the very first reaction to Jesus we see. And as we as I noted a moment ago, there's really three here, and this is the first, blatant animosity towards Jesus. Blatant animosity towards Jesus. We see this in the very opening verse. Look down again at the passage before you. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, here's a fascinating thing in our passage. Here's a group, the very first verses of the text, that aren't interested at all in having an ambivalent reaction to Jesus. This group isn't at all neutral to Jesus. They're not undecided about Jesus. They're not wondering what they're going to do with Jesus. They've decided what they're going to do with Jesus. It's not just simply oppose him. It's not even just simply to hate him. They're out to destroy and murder him. Now, if you haven't been reading the gospel of Mark up to this point, and this is always the problem with taking a passage out of a gospel and sort of looking at it in isolation, is we don't get the feel of 
what this passage would look like if we've been reading the gospel through faithfully and consistently. But what's amazing is if you've been reading through Mark for 14 chapters and get to this chapter and see the reaction of the chief priests and the scribes, it should stun us for the very simple reason that for the last 14 chapters, we've seen no reason at all that they would hate Jesus. And you can be sure they've been watching him. One of the things the chief priest did well, to be sure, was watch people, right? If you wanted to know what they were about, they were about watching people. They'd watch your every move, every action, every thought, if they could get a hold of it. Everything that you were doing, they would track and watch and supervise and scrutinize and did the same thing for Jesus for three years of his ministry. And what is the evidence that they gathered that makes them hate Christ? But what have they seen for all this time? Well, they've seen several things. They've seen Jesus feed the 5,000 hungry people. They've seen Jesus heal the sick. They've seen Jesus go be with lepers who had no community and no fellowship and heal them. They saw Jesus raise a little girl from the dead. In other words, over three years, they've seen countless actions, countless Uh, performances of deeds of grace and goodness and mercy and faithfulness. And after all this, what is their conclusion? Let's kill him. Now that should stun us. That should shock us. When we read a story like this, we should wonder what would make someone do that, particularly the chief priests and the scribes. If anybody should have gotten it right, if anyone should have understood the way the world worked in that time in terms of what God desired, if anyone should have understood the Scripture and how to identify the Messiah, surely it was the chief priests and scribes. Wouldn't it be true that after even one miracle of Christ, they would have paused and said, well, maybe we were wrong about him. Maybe we were mistaken. Maybe he really is the Son of God. Maybe we ought to reconsider. But none of that takes place. What they see is countless acts of good, and they reach a conclusion that he should be killed. Now, that tells us something very keen and important in this very first point. It's simply this. People's reactions to Jesus have nothing to do with the evidence. They have nothing to do with the evidence. They have nothing to do with reason or cause in terms of something wrong with Jesus or something mistaken about him or something not quite right with him. No, people refuse Jesus not because of any evidence they have regarding him. They had every reason to accept him but instead rejected him. So what was going on with the chief priests and the scribes? You know, the text gives us a hint to this. You may not have caught it. You may have missed it. It's subtly put in there. But look back down in your passage in verse 2, because here's the hint that we get. Notice what they said. They want to murder Jesus. But notice their big concern in verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. What is the first thing on the chief priests and scribes' mind during this time? Answer, maintaining control, maintaining power, maintaining their reign. Who was in charge in the first century in Jerusalem and in the religious life of that time period? The chief priests and the scribes. And they want to murder Jesus, but they want to do it in such a way that they don't lose their control over their lives. In other words, the very thing that Jesus was challenging The very reason that they didn't like him and wanted to resist him is because Jesus was asking for their lordship, or rather their worship, that he would be lord over them, and they were refusing at every point. 
They rejected Christ because they wanted to be king of their own lives. Now, when you look at a reaction like this, truth be told, and if we're honest with ourselves this morning, this is a reaction we all have to some extent in our own hearts. But I imagine even more than that, there's probably some, even here today, maybe you found yourself sort of in the doors of Christ Central today, and maybe you wouldn't necessarily put it this way, but you find yourself in your heart resisting, fighting against, warring against Christ. And you realize why that's the case. It's not because there's no merit in him. He is wonderful. He is fantastic. He is great. You realize the reason you're resisting him even today is because he is asking for control over your life, just like he was asking for control over the scribes and Pharisees, and you find yourself saying, I will have none of it. Now, even Christians have this reaction from time to time as we fight against our tendency to be rulers of our own life. But if you don't know Christ today, then you may be finding this is exactly your hesitancy, that you found yourself lining yourself up in opposition to him at every stage. You know, there's one thing that will never succeed against Christ, and that is trying to conquer him and defeat him. The scribes and Pharisees thought, you know, if we could just murder him, then we'll win. If we could just destroy him, then we've succeeded. But of course, they didn't realize that paradoxically, they're actually bringing the very victory that Jesus set out to achieve. He cannot be overthrown. You know, the other day I was in the grocery store picking up a few things, and I was walking down the aisle, and I saw this little two-year-old boy throwing him a temper tantrum. One of those awful grocery store moments, right? You've been there, where this little child was throwing a temper tantrum, wailing and screaming in the aisle. So I did what any person would do. I stopped to watch, <laughs> wondering how might this turn out. And I noticed that his dad was there with him, and he was a big guy. I mean, enormous, well-built, tall, reached down to pick up his young child. And as he reached down to pick up this two-year-old in a temper tantrum, the two-year-old tried to hit his father in the face. I thought about this for a moment. Isn't that true of every young boy? Every once in a while, no matter what age you are, you always look at your old man and think, I can take him. <laughs> Even at two. What did this man do? Big guy took his two-year-old boy and just held him out. <laughs> Boy's kicking, screaming, swinging. Dad's calmly, gently holding him. I thought about that scene. I thought, you know, that is it, isn't it? That is the very posture that some of us find ourselves in with Christ. Kicking, screaming, swinging, opposing, but not able to overthrow. You know, if you're here today and you have this first reaction to Christ, this tendency in your heart to go against him, there's only one proper, fitting reaction to Christ that anyone can have, and it's not war. It's that animosity. The only successful reaction to Christ is submission and worship. But you know, there's a second reaction that we see here in this passage today, not just blatant animosity. Let's keep looking and see what else Mark shows us here. And there's a second response that he takes us through on this tour, and that is outward association with Jesus. Outward association. So blatant animosity is one reaction. 
outward association is the second one. And here we come to the end of our story. So going out of order a little bit, we go down to Judas in verses 10 through 11. Here we read about his desire to betray Jesus ultimately. But you know what's interesting about this story is that Judas doesn't just pop up in the end of the story. He actually pops up in the middle of the story in a way you might not realize. In verse 4, notice what it says. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted? It could have been given to the poor. We find out in a parallel passage in the Gospels elsewhere that the person saying that was Judas. Judas is an example of the second reaction to Jesus today, and that is outward association. I want you to notice the difference between Judas and the Pharisees and the scribes up to this point in his life, at least, and that is that Judas was not blatantly opposed to Jesus. In fact, the opposite. At every point along the way, Jesus, or Judas aligned himself with Jesus. Judas was in Jesus' system, on his team, working for his cause, all on the way into the gospel like this for 14 chapters, Judas has aligned himself with the mission of Jesus at every point, even being one of the 12 apostles, the very core inner team of Jesus. No, Judas was on Jesus's team, but what we realize at the very end of this passage that his association with Jesus was merely outward. It was merely temporary. It was tentative. You know, it's interesting about Judas, and I think we make this mistake all the time. We think to ourselves, you know, I could have spotted Judas as just an outward guy if I had been there. I think we have this idea in our head that Judas was an obvious guy. He was just on the outskirts. The problem is that wasn't the case. Don't think that it was obvious at all to people in the time period that Judas was one who was going to betray Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' words at the Last Supper? One of you will betray me. The 12 didn't just all look to Judas and say, well, we know it's him. In fact, it was so shocking to them that they thought maybe it was their own hearts that were deceived. You know what's interesting about people who have an outward association with Jesus? It can often have a veneer of righteousness about it. People with an outward association with Jesus usually seem relatively pious, relatively holy. Did you notice what cause and what righteous sort of activity Judas was about in the story? It's very clear in verse 4 and verse 5, and that is helping the poor. Look down at your passage again in that text. There were some to themselves, said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Here is Judas's righteous cause helping the poor. Now, truth be told, when I read a story like this, I think to myself, you know, if I'm honest, I kind of agree with Judas. Maybe you read the story this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, when I read that story and I think about the causes, Judas makes sense to me. He seems to be concerned about an important cause, helping the poor. Why wouldn't he want to do that? Maybe the ointment could have been sold for that. And we find ourselves, and I find myself, in some sense, agreeing with Judas's pious and righteous cause. But you know something? Something not quite right about what's going on here. When we dig a little deeper into Judas and his outward association with Jesus, we notice something about him that's very interesting. And that is, we notice how impersonal he is in the way he relates to Jesus. You ever notice that? And you can see it right here in the story. 
Notice how much that Judas is certainly about this cause of helping the poor, but he doesn't seem to notice Christ. He doesn't seem to be concerned about Christ. He's not worried about whether this ointment is glorifying and honoring and bringing dignity and worship to Christ. He doesn't seem to see Christ at all. Judas has this impersonalness about Jesus. You know, the thing about outward associations with Jesus is they can have a veneer of righteousness about them, but at the end of the day, they're ultimately about oneself and about what one can get out of their relationship with Jesus. That was true with Judas. It doesn't take much probing around the Gospels to learn why Judas was so concerned that this jar of alabaster perfume be sold. Because we learn in other Gospel accounts that Judas was the one who kept the money for the twelve. We also learn in other gospel accounts that not only did Judas keep the money, but often would help himself to it. And you can imagine Judas looking at this alabaster jar cracked on the ground thinking, oh my goodness, if that could have been sold. Think about the money that could have been put into the kitty and think about the money that I would have access to. You know, the thing about Judas that's interesting is that Judas seems to have been aboard the Jesus train, so to speak, because it seemed to be beneficial to him. It seemed to give him an advantage. You can imagine how excited he might have been at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here's the Messiah. He would usher in the kingdom of God. I'm right in the middle of his team. I'm one of the 12. I'll sit on one of the 12 thrones and rule the nation of Israel. There'll be power and there'll be prestige and there'll be honor. There'll be money. There'll be success. I'll benefit from this relationship with Jesus. But then Jesus did something unexpected because Jesus started talking about his real mission, which was none of those things. His mission was to suffer. His mission was to die. His mission was to recruit others who would be willing to do the same. And as soon as Judas realized that the real mission of Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross, you know what Judas did? Judas said, well, I want none of it. Sold him for 30 pieces of silver, got the final bit of money he could get out of Jesus, and went on his way. Judas didn't mind hanging around Jesus when it benefited him, but it was hard. It was clear he had only an outward association. And that should be a challenge to all of us here today, right? Just like point one, do you have blatant animosity to Jesus? We can be challenged with point two and ask ourselves, is that me today? You know, I know a lot about Christ Central Church, even though this is my first Sunday here. I've, I've kept up with the very good ministry you've all been doing for a long time, and I know you're a busy church with lots of things you're busy doing, lots of good causes, lots of good activities, lots of good ministries, nothing wrong with any of that. But let me ask you a very important question that is going to make the difference for you today, and that has to do with the motive of your ministry. What motivates you? Are you motivated by a cause, or are you motivated by a person? Are you motivated by a cause, or are you motivated by a person? You know what's interesting about many people who they go through their life, they're motivated by causes. They're motivated by ideas and principles. And certainly Christianity has these, but that's not the ultimate motivation. If you're here at Christ Central, a thing that's getting you up in the morning is a cause or an idea or a principle. Here's the problem with that is that those things have a limited lifespan. Those things cannot motivate you for your entire life. They run out because one day you're going to wake up in the morning, you're going to say, this cause isn't worth it. 
This cause isn't getting it done. This cause isn't fulfilling me. This cause isn't, isn't giving me a benefit. This cause is, is bringing me suffering and difficulty. I'm done with this cause. There's only one thing that can sustain you in ministry, and that is if the thing that is driving you is not some idea, but the thing that you love is a person. Christ himself. Don't find yourself at Christ Central Church with merely an outward association with Jesus because you think this church is doing good things. No, you should be here because you love a person who lives, who reigns. His name is Christ. Judas missed that. And he only had an outward association. It was a tragic, tragic story for him. Someone who seemed to be so aligned with Jesus who proved to be really aligned with himself. This brings us to our last and final observation from this text in terms of reactions to Jesus, and that is deep affection for Jesus. Not blatant animosity, not outward association, but deep affection for Jesus. And of course, here's where we come to the woman with the alabaster jar of perfume. Pure nard, the text tells us. We learn also from other gospel accounts about who this woman is. This is Mary. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, not Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus loved and who sat at his feet. It's that Mary who comes and breaks this bottle and shows her deep affection at the feet of Jesus. And that is the reaction this text leads us to. Did you notice where Mark puts this story of the woman? He sandwiches it between the other two stories. Did you notice that? So you have the blatant animosity at the front, and then you have Judas's uh, outward association at the back, and then in the middle is this woman with the alabaster jar. That is intentional framing of the story from Mark, as I said at the very beginning of the sermon. Mark does this. Why? To show the contrast, to see the difference of what a true follower of Jesus looks like as opposed to others. You know, I like this term affection. You know, sometimes I think we ask the wrong question when we ask whether someone's a Christian. Often we ask, do you believe in Jesus? Now, that's a good question to ask. Don't get me wrong. That's a biblical way of phrasing it. But, of course, what the Bible means by belief isn't what our world often means by belief. You ask someone whether they believe in Jesus, and everyone's like, well, sure, fine, yeah, great, I believe in Jesus. But they don't understand what the Bible means by that. I think the word affection is better. What if you ask someone, do you have affection for Jesus? Let me ask you this morning, do you have affection for Jesus? Do you find him wonderful? Do you find him precious? Do you delight in him? Your answer to those questions will tell you probably very quickly whether you're about a cause or a person. Mary had it very clear in her own mind. She was about a person. She found Jesus to be wonderful, and it led her to have an amazing affection for Jesus. Now, when we look into this third point a little bit, there's several things about her affection I want to point out to you, because I think they really help round out the scene here. First of all, once you notice that her affection was sacrificial. Sacrificial. And here's, of course, where we come to this amazing story about the alabaster jar itself. Because this is a sacrificial gift like no other. This is a lavish gift. This is excessive. This is abundant. This is outrageous. This was a very well-known perfume in the first century. 
imported from India, pure nard, kept in these jars that the only way you could actually use it was to break and destroy the jar, which used it all up at once, worth an incredible amount of money, 300 denarii, what the text tells us is more than a year's wages, let's just say in our modern day to put a number on it, $50,000 worth of a pure perfume and nard, and Mary has this nard. How did she get it? No doubt this is her inheritance. This is her family uh, 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 sort of retirement plan. No doubt this has been passed down from generation to generation. Make no mistake, Mary doesn't have a, a closet full of jars of pure nard. This is her whole life, all she has, her very best, top shelf, and she comes and she breaks it at the feet of Jesus. What a contrast with Judas. Notice how stingy Judas is with Jesus. Notice how much Judas is a hoarder. Notice how much he is self-protecting. And here is Mary, so full of affection for Jesus that she sacrifices literally her entire financial existence at the feet of Christ. She's not thinking, how can I get something from Jesus? She's not thinking, how can I preserve my own life? She's not thinking about how I can get 30 more pieces of silver out of him. She gives up everything to him. Where have we lost that kind of affection? You ever wonder that? I ask myself that all the time. Where have I lost that? Where have I lost that sort of willingness? You know, somewhere along the way, we've been taught that Life is found in self-preservation. That if I just think about protecting my interests, if I think about protecting my finances, if I think about how I can have a life of enjoyment and pleasure and comfort, then that's where life is richer and better. What a lie. The text comes to us today and says, that was the path of Judas. That's the path of outward association. You know, the Passages like this really remind us of a simple truth is that when you try to save your life for yourself, you are absolutely wasting it. It's a waste. It's not a waste to spend it on Jesus. It is a waste to spend it on yourself. You know, I'm confident this morning as I just look around at a congregation like Christ Central that God has a real special message for all of us in this passage today. I think he really wants us to bring lavishness back into our lives. He really wants us to bring excess back into our lives. In one sense, he wants us to bring wastefulness back into our lives, but not for us, for Christ, to give away our lives in a way we never thought out or thought about before. Some of you, it may be monetary. Some of you, may, God may be using this passage today to say, look, I am calling you to give away more money than you ever thought you would do. Others of you today, God is calling to something else. He wants you to give away your time and your schedules in a way that you never really thought you would do. Whatever happens to be, Christ is worth it. Another thing about Mary here, though, in terms of her affection for Jesus that's important to observe, and that's not just that it's sacrificial, but that it's theological. It's theological. You know what we think about when we think about terms like affection? As we think about, you know, if I'm going to have affection for Jesus, I just got to drum it up. I just got to find a way to be more emotional. 
I gotta find a way to just stir up affection for affection's sake. But that's not what's driving Mary. Mary's not just, a, just emotional for emotional sake. She doesn't have just a feeling for no reason. What is it grounded in? A rich, deep, theological understanding of who Jesus is and what he was coming to do. Did you realize what Jesus said about Mary in the story? It's easy to miss. Look down in your passage again there and notice what Jesus says about her in verse eight. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now we read that and we miss it entirely because we know Jesus is gonna go die. Here's the amazing thing is that he's been telling this to the disciples for chapter after chapter and they have not gotten it. They don't get the fact that he's gonna go and die. They haven't embraced the fact that he's going to die. They haven't really let that in. They're not even on board with that. Judas is certainly not on board with Jesus going to die because that means that Christian life is a life of suffering and sacrifice. Mary steps on the scene with a rich, deep theological understanding and says, I get it. I understand what you're doing, Jesus. You're, you're going to die for the sins of the world. And by breaking this alabaster jar of perfume on Jesus' feet, she is saying, I am on board with your mission. I am with you. Mary is a theologian. Mary gets it. You want to have greater affection for Jesus? You want to love him with a wild affection? It doesn't just start by trying to drum up emotion. It starts with a rich understanding of who he is and what he's come to do. It's an amazing scene. Here's Mary, a relative nobody, no education really, no formal role, no person of standing, no aristocratic sort of office, walks into this room full of all these other guys who don't get it at all, and she's the one who gets it and walks in and crushes this jar because she understood the theological truth that Jesus was dying for the sins of the world. You want to have affection for Christ today, it begins with understanding him better. It begins with that word sometimes we don't like, theology. Isn't that for seminary students? It's for everybody. It's just a way of talking about how we understand who Christ is. So we come to a close here today in this text. We've seen three reactions. Blatant animosity, outward affection, or sorry, outward association, and deep affection. Do not leave today till you have really wrestled with where you are in those three choices. And as we come to this table before us here, this table will cause us to reflect on those three choices because this table, as we're going to transition to now, is a table that is only for one of those three choices for those who love and have affection for Jesus.